today on 2C Vans. Yeah, we, we, we are very careful with, with our snook, particularly when they're, when they're really small. Mm -hmm. Larval, post-larval snook are so fragile. That's one of the, the troubles, one of the hurdles that we have to overcome in rearing large numbers of these things. It's almost like you look at them wrong and, and there's they, a problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. so. Welcome to 2C Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science and education and conservation here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Recker. Holy moly, that was a long intro. Hi. <laughs> and I'm Joe Nicholson. <laughs> and I should add that it's also taking place in Sarasota, Florida uh, in uh, 2018. It is. I just had to add more to that title. Well, you told me to hurry this morning, so I wanted to draw it out. Haley, man. <laughs> <laughs> We're already uh, making our guest laugh, but we have a great guest today. Uh, tell us your name and title, please. My name is Ryan Slusher, and I'm a postdoctoral research scientist in the Fisheries Ecology and Enhancement Program here at Moat. Now, hold on a second. You said, how do you say that last name? Slusher. Okay, but it's not spelled like that. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, There's I, a silent O. <laughs> oh, so just disregard the O. Yeah, and some of the other letters, maybe. The yeah. whole S-C-H thing. <laughs> I always want to say schlesser. I always want to say schlosser. Technically, it's sh-less-er. Okay. Oh, like a bear. Schlesser. Er. If you follow that little okay. If you follow those principles, it works. Otherwise, Ryan S. works just Ryan as well. S. Or just put a confused look on your face. That's That <laughs> usually is for me. That's, that's, that's my name. That's like Tuesday for me. <laughs> <laughs> it is Tuesday. So, uh, what, so what does that mean? Post, what, um, what's the program all about? So the Fisheries Ecology and Enhancement Program releases aquaculture reared juvenile snook into local waters to understand uh, what types of things wild fish may need and how we can help uh what do we do <laughs> what we do, do too do? much so how you can how you can help them survive out there and make the habitat better for them maybe yeah, yeah we re we release hatchery reared fish to to try to improve habitats mm. and and improve the stock and improve the stock so if there was to be a unfortunately snook can be subjected to some mass mortality events due to cold stuns or red tides and the population can get knocked back pretty far. Mm. When that happens, our goal is to maybe be proactive and see if we can't release hatchery-reared individuals back into the population and give them a jump start on the way to recovery. And gotcha. do it responsibly, right? And do it responsibly. Ooh, <laughs> responsibly. Not in my vocabulary. <laughs> Wait, Joe, aren't you going to ask him where he's from? Um, hi, Ryan. I'm Joe. <laughs> hi, Joe. Nice to meet you. Where are you from? I'm actually originally from Wisconsin, so oh, the cheesehead state. I'm quite the I'm quite the transplant. I've been jumping around the country for quite a while to get here to Florida. So you were you were born in Wisconsin, went to school. I'm assuming there all your life up until no nope. no nope. almost the exact opposite. Really? Uh, out of high school, I jumped down to Florida. Wow! Oh, sorry. You jumped. <laughs> I jumped literally one big jump. Uh, no, I jumped down to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's different from Florida. Yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> how I ended up in Florida, but I went from Wisconsin and went to school in Texas. I did my undergraduate and masters uh, at Texas A&M University, oh, okay. based out of Galveston for Aggies, much of right? that. The Aggies, yeah. Gigum. Gigum. And uh, after that, I went over to Virginia. So North Coast, South Coast, East, East Coast. Coast. 
Florida. <laughs> Where'd you go in Virginia? I went to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. VIMS. VIMS. Cool. And there I worked on condition of juvenile fishes. So in Texas, I kind of looked at uh, contribution of nursery habitats to adult stocks. Virginia, I looked at what makes a, a good nursery habitat for juvenile fishes. And now I'm kind of combining both of those interests here in Florida. Snook. When we say when we say a nursery, you're talking like in Florida, that's mangroves or places where snook are babies and they're protected and they're growing. Yep, nursery habitats are those those critical places that that juvenile fishes need to be able to survive and grow into those adult fish that we love to catch. Mm. Mm. So they're not like little fish in cradles with diapers <laughs> and, and no. little nappies and wipes. And but but it serves the same purpose. When you put purpose, your baby yeah. in a cradle, you put it there because it's safe. safe. It's the safe zone. That's their nursery. Fishes need that too. You want to give a shout out to your advisor? Which ones? <laughs> <laughs> Does he mean your mode advisor? Yeah, in well in Texas I worked with Dr. Jay okay. Rooker. Whoa. Okay. In in Virginia I worked with Dr. Mary Fabrizio and both of those individuals really helped culture my my uh, my whole direction in, in research and, and cultured my interest in what I want to do to help benefit wild fish populations. And, and now here at Moat, I work with Dr. Ken Lieber, who's really kind of an icon in the field of stock enhancements. Yes, he, he is uh, one of the... Like a uh, legend. Yeah, he is a legend in, in marine stock enhancement, really helped, has helped grow the field for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and this is also, all of our work uh, couldn't be done without our team at Moats Aquaculture Park under the guidance of, of Kevin Maine. Uh, she does a phenomenal job in aquaculture and without her experiences we could never rear the juvenile snook that we need to to release and understand uh, habitat needs for these fishes. And now that we've got all of our disclosures <coughs> out of the way, <laughs> um, where was I going with that? Brain ah, just went blank. Good, because then I'll step in. Okay. <laughs> Well, um, you talked about snook. Is that your? Is that the biggest uh, focus you work with right now? Yeah, the this, the fisheries ecology and enhancement program really focuses on snook now. In the past, they've done red drum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would be great to continue to look at more species, but uh, snook is just so iconic here in Florida. It's well, so important done, for recreational fisheries. We, yeah. We've done snook here before, and we've had we we had great success with it when the aquaculture. Um, facility was actually here on campus. Well, I wasn't here for that transition, but part of the reason uh, they switched out to the aquaculture, moved to the aquaculture park was just space limitation. Yeah. It requires a lot of space to have the brood stock and the hatchery facilities and the grow out and rearing pumps uh, facilities, and pumps. Filters and uh, it takes a lot of work. And part of that transition was uh, when this program first started, they actually used uh, wild spawning fish. Yes. So they did strip they spawning, kind of like you would do with salmon. Yeah. And yep, they mm-hmm. would remove the eggs and the milt and mix them up and bring them back to try to rear them. And yep. uh, snook, is, snook have just such a complex triggers to, to cue spawning um, that that's a really hard hurdle to overcome. But once they started figuring those things out and putting all those pieces together, that made captive spawning possible. And now that we can do captive spawning out at the aquaculture park, uh, the success of the spawns is so much higher that we can produce so many more fish that we that we have more and more hurdles to overcome to, to do this. Yeah, so how do you so how do you actually do the the captive spawning though? Because uh, like, like you said, in the wild they would strip them and then mix the egg and sperm 
in a jar, basically. Yeah. Um, is that the same way you do it out at the... You just let them nope. do it naturally? Yeah, so that's why I have to give the shout-out to my aquaculture colleagues because that is not my area of expertise. I'm kind of the field guy. Yeah. They they do the work behind the scenes. I get the credit for all of their uh, hard work is how, okay. how it happens. But uh, they use photothermal conditioning, so they kind of set the temperatures and yeah. the light cycles that that get snook in the mood and start thinking, ah, it's about music. spawning. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. it's about spawning time. We, yeah. should, we should invest our energy in eggs. And then uh, when they get into that peak condition how do you uh, separate the eggs out from the fish though they they spawn naturally yeah but then they They release them don't they yeah they they the females release the eggs yeah i know but the males follow but they they fertilize oh and then 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 when they like become fries are they still in the same tank as the adults no so the eggs actually float so they go up to the surface and with a gentle recirculating current i'm getting those those eggs hit eggs out yeah, the eggs the hit a, a bar uh-huh. that runs along the surface, a skimmer bar that just funnels the eggs into a net, and then they can be gently removed and, and then you rinsed, can and then we calculate how them. many yeah. eggs we have, how many are fertilized, what's the hatch rate, they, they get moved around, and that's where my colleagues are, that's truly the, the experts. That's so. where I was getting at. So in, if you want to be a field guy like you doing fisheries enhancement research, is it is it like necessary paramount to have an aquaculture program attached to your project? Or, or do people do fisheries enhancement somehow without having that? You pretty much have to have an aquaculture facility. Huh. And uh, Moat's one of those places where we have all the pieces hmm. here in order to have successful stock enhancement research. And that's the piece I was trying to fit in. Fantastico. So tell us about... Only at moat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the uh, getting the fish from the aquaculture park. You were telling Joe before we started recording just that it's not easy to catch those little guys, measure them, and do whatever we need to do before an experiment. It's not like those guys you see on you know in San Francisco chucking the salmon around, right? (laughs) No. Yeah, we, we, we are very careful with with our snook particularly when they're when they're really small Mm -hmm. larval post larval snook are so fragile that's one of the the troubles one of the hurdles that we have to overcome in rearing large numbers of these things it's almost like you look at them wrong and and there's a problem Uh (laughs) so we have to be very gentle and when they finally get large enough to be able to handle uh, we start taking lengths and weights so we're monitoring the growth of the individuals we do counts to make sure their survival is high we really kind of baby these fish along to make sure that we can produce large and are large enough individuals and enough individuals to conduct our research Fish are slimy. And fish are slimy. Uh, so it's always interesting handling them, some of our new interns and volunteers, <laughs> watching watching them try to, to grab a fish to put it in uh-huh. the anesthesia. They kind of yeah. fumble around. <laughs> then you hand them a net and be like, this will be easier. This'll you can do it this easier. way. There you go. Um, but they're always impressed when you can actually just swoop into the tank and just you have gently claws. grab it. I don't no. have claws. Have you mastered that skill? We don't claw fish, but I have mastered the mastered skill of skill. just reaching in, 
gently grabbing a fish, bringing it out, setting it in the, uh, in the anesthesia, catcher. and the yeah, the the interns look at you like, how did you do that? <gasps> You're a god. <laughs> the the fish whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you how do you get ready to track these fish? What do you what do you follow when you've released them? Tell us about a release and and the tracking that goes on after. Yeah. So depending on what our research is trying to answer, we have a couple different techniques. As I said, we we weigh and measure these fish. We understand their growth, and when they finally are large enough we'll actually tag all the individuals that we intend to release. Mm -hmm. And we use two different tag types. Uh, one tag type is called a coated wire tag. Yeah. It's a really tiny, tiny one millimeter long, basically sliver of metal mm -hmm. that you would never even notice. And we just put it in the cheek actually. Mm -hmm. And we can detect with a special wand whether or not that little piece of metal is present in the cheek. Mm -hmm. And we know that it's actually one of the fish released out of the hatchery. So if you catch a fish with a tiny bit of facial hair, don't worry. <laughs> you, would, you would never <laughs> you eat, wouldn't even see you it. Would you never even, even, as long as you're not eating fish heads, I think you'll be yeah, okay. Don't eat, don't eat snook cheeks, okay? <laughs> eat, eat the grouper cheeks. The <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Yeah. So, okay, the coated wire tag, and what was the other tag? The other tag that we use is called the passive integrated transponder tag. That's so, the pinger one, right? Well, we, yeah, we just call it a pit tag, and the, that one doesn't actually ping. Oh. So there are, there are tags that ping. Those are acoustic tags, okay. and they actually send out sound uh, at regular intervals. These, these pit tags just kind of sit there totally quiet. Mm -hmm. For the entire life of the fish, they'll just sit there and wait to be excited by an electromagnetic field. Ooh. And when that when excited. when that tag crosses the electromagnetic field, then it actually sends out its signal. Is that what you're using? So that's what we use for some of the larger fish that we release. We put these pit tags in the individuals because whenever they swim past one of our monitoring stations that we have out in the creek, we know exactly which individual was using that part of the creek when they were there, and how long they stayed. Wow. That's a lot more information than we can get from the coated wire tag. Because mm -hmm. if we ever find a coated wire tag, we just know that That's we that have fish. this fish. Yeah. It's, um, it's like a dog tag. Well, the pit tag's kind of like a, well, yeah, the, the, the coated, coated wire, wire tag is like the tag on the collar. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I know who you yeah. are and where you came from. Yeah. But the pit tag is actually the same type of microchip that you would use uh, in, in a cat or dog. It's uh, about the same size. It's too? the same technology. They're mm. about the same size. They might be a little bit bigger for the for the fish, just because of the power needs, especially for the remote detection. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't worked with pit tagging cats and dogs, so I just oh, don't know enough there. But would. it's the same type of technology, probably the exact same tags uh, that you use. We just use them to to detect to detect fish remotely. Gotcha. So um, we've heard that. You want to know what kind of habitats the fish use. That's one use of the pit tag. See if they're staying in a habitat. Um, see what they like to stay with. Um, and that makes me think of our creeks around here, some of the places that you studied. Some areas are kind of urbanized. Some areas have more vegetation. How is that important for, for snook studies? I think what she's trying to say is we've heard you got fish in the hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, our fish are in your backyard, whether you know it or not, because uh, particularly in Philippi Creek and North Creek, those are the two systems that we do most of our work in right now. Yeah. And we have, uh, how many do we have now? I don't know. We have a dozen pit tag antenna arrays out along uh, the creek edges in those systems. Really? Um, and those are monitoring a variety of different habitat types, from your typical natural mangrove 
uh, line shoreline to some more anthropogenically altered ones like in terms sea of seawalls and, and mixes of the two and places where seawalls turn into mangroves and these transitional habitats. So we're monitoring all these different types of shoreline features and releasing our tag snook right at those shorelines to understand well, how do they use the different parts of the shoreline? Where do they move? Where do they spend most of their time? And when you see these fish utilizing these different habitats more and more over time, you actually create what's called the recapture history. Oh, nice. And by creating a recapture history, you can actually look at survival. So we know the, the long-term survival uh, impacts of using these different shorelines mm -hmm. uh, with our hatchery release snook. So you know who has been recaptured maybe the most or over the most years and that is that about how does the survival come out of that well the survival comes out from using some pretty complex models they're called oh. mark they're called mark recapture models so we by by conducting regular releases at specific intervals by looking at the proportion of fish caught through time mm. or at different timelines you can you can estimate you can ask the model to pull out well what's the likelihood that this fish is alive mm. or or uh or dead. You ask or well. Yeah. You have to. It, it's a, it's not it's not quite so simple because ah. you don't know if a fish is is dead it could or be if it in, just moved or, and you don't see it again. Or it could be in a bigger fish. It, well, it could be in a bigger fish or in a bird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, either way, we don't see it again. Yeah. So we don't know whether a fish is dead or just hasn't been seen. So you have to ask the model: What's the likelihood of it being alive? Mm -hmm. What's the likelihood of it being dead or if alive and just not seen somewhere? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah, that's awesome that they have a model that does that. I it sounds very challenging to work with. It's it's been a learning <laughs> experience. <laughs> learning curve. Always something fun to learn. Very cool. Um, and have you have you learned um, from your projects or similar projects what kind of habitats these guys prefer? So we're going to we're continuing to do research to have a better understanding of the types of habitat, but some of the broader uh, some of the broader outcomes really just seem to suggest that as long as you have complexity in your habitat, if you have these complex features where the mm -hmm. fish can hide, where their prey live so that they have something to eat, as long as your habitat is complex, fish will tend to use those habitats more and they get survival benefits coming from that. Mm. And do you have any of the local fishermen or like anybody from like CCA or any like organizations like that helping you out like with your study? or? So the one way that we work with local fishermen now is through our annual fishing tournament, the Snook Shindig. Okay. So that's when local fishermen, local anglers, because I'll be honest, they know how to catch fish far better than I do. If if anyone's but, but they likely, don't catch them with their hands, do no, they? <laughs> no fish whisperer. <laughs> well, I also don't usually catch fish with my hands out in the wild. Yeah, that you would know, be That truly. really requires nets. At least they're in a bucket uh, when yeah. I'm trying to handle them. Yeah. Uh, but they know how to. They know where the snook are out in the wild. They know how to catch them. So they're more likely to find these snook throughout the Sarasota Bay watershed um, when they're out there fishing. Okay. So let's let's utilize that skill set. Their skill and their let's, knowledge, yeah. Let's ask them, hey, can you guys go out and just do what you do best? Go catch snook anywhere you can find them. And we'll just tag along with our scanners and find out if any of the fish that you're catching happen to have originated from our hatchery. Yeah. So every year we do this, and we're hoping to work with more local anglers like fishing clubs uh, so that maybe we can actually be looking for our hatchery-reared fish, hatchery fish 
uh, more often and do, in more do different you hear locations. That CCA members, <laughs> <laughs> have you heard yet when uh, our next snook shindig is going to be? Yeah, we're going to have a snook shindig this fall. This fall, okay. I don't recall the dates off the top of my head. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I when. Anyway. We'll make sure you guys get them when when we know. <laughs> um, so if people. Fisher, fishers or not, if they want to be good good neighbors to um, the fish in our creeks in Sarasota County or Sarasota Bay, um, what should they do? One of the simplest things you can do that our research suggests is just encourage habitat mm-hmm. along your shoreline. Okay. Have vegetation. Let it grow. Let it do what it does best and provide what those juvenile fishes need to, to support the population because ultimately um, nature does it better than we can. Mm-hmm. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. But, you know, what are these um, local fisheries forum meetings you guys have? Like, I know Ken's always, like, having these forum meetings, <laughs> and I hear about, you know, all the fishtails that are going on with these things. Can yes. you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so the fisheries forum uh, out of Sarasota Bay is just a meeting that happens every other month where concerned citizens, people can just voice their opinion, and their voice can uh, be heard by research man. Uh, resource managers, scientists, uh, people that can actually do something about it. So it's a way to get managers, scientists, and local citizens all in the same room together talking about important issues, particularly for fisheries. And it's like free and open to the public? Totally free, totally open. There's a presentation by a respected scientist in the area talking about some of the newest and greatest things, whether it's some of our fisheries work, whether it's habitat enhancements, uh, you name it, beach renourishments. We've had presentations on all sorts of interesting issues. Really? And that way citizens can hear the science, <laughs> voice their concerns, and resource managers can do something about it. That sounds cool. That's awesome. So before we go, I had two research questions for you um, to learn about some of your, your projects that I don't know as much about. Um, there was the idea of using, I think, acoustic receivers in the bay passes to learn about fish and other species. Can you tell me what's going on in that uh, area of your work? Yeah, so there's moat scientists from a variety of different fields collaborating on a project called Wire the Bay. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've heard about this. So the Wire the Bay project is using those acoustic receivers for those acoustic tags that send out that signal at regular regular intervals. intervals. And we're putting tags, our groups are putting tags in a suite of different species. Cool. So our group is actually putting tags in snook, Mm-hmm. There's groups putting tags in sharks, in stingrays, yeah, eagle, in rays. eagle rays. We're hoping to get yeah. tags in tarpon. I mean, you name it. If it's using Sarasota Bay, mm-hmm. we're hoping to put acoustic tags in it to understand when do these fish come into Sarasota Bay? When do they leave? What parts of the bay do they use? Do they ever go up into the tidal creeks like snook? Is it only snook? When do they do that? Do certain tidal creeks, do the fish in those systems move to certain passes? Snook live in the tidal creeks, or they use the tidal creeks during the winter, and they typically spawn at the passes. Yeah. So how does that transition happen? Hmm. Do you see fish from Philippi Creek going to Longboat Pass or Venice Inlet? How is it? Yeah. So what's, the, what's do they do that on? every single year? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Important questions to ask about more, our local fish More pops. questions and hopefully some answers from the... Uh, yeah. The program, yeah. Those passes, like transition zones, kind of different between different parts of their life, maybe. If yeah. They, if they move about. And it's all different for different species. Cool. So collaborating with a bunch of moat scientists, all interested in a variety of species, provides a really a unique research uh, project. Well, you're getting a bigger picture of the whole bay rather than just, you know, your individual study. 
a lot of researchers that do acoustic tagging and have these big acoustic networks, uh, they're usually focused on individual species. So here's something different where we're we're focusing on a suite of different species. I love it. Looking at it at a more ecosystem level. better understanding of our bay. Yeah. So my last question (laughs) for you is going to sound nerdy to anybody who hasn't heard of this. Nerd alert, nerd alert. Yeah, what are fish otoliths? Oh, oh, and oh, why oh. do you study them? Oh, 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 oh. They're, they're ear somethings. They're ear, ear, ear things. You're on fish. the right track. It's Sounds an ear thing in a fish. It's you've got ear. Fish's ear. <laughs> help him, help him. <laughs> Otoliths ear are. rhymes with beer. Now you got me distracted. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, people often call them ear bones because in, in humans we have ear bones. Yeah. And otoliths and fish work the same way as our ears do. Uh, they're actually little stones. They ha- they accrete these daily rings. They grow with the fish, and they they work like human ears. So mm-hmm. in our ears, we we use our ears for balance mm-hmm. and for hearing. Right. Yeah. Fish otoliths in their ears are used for balance, so they know how they're oriented in the water. And some species actually use them for hearing. Cool. Uh, fish listen. Many people don't really think of that. Uh, they they hear they, they hear do. things too. Well, they make noises. They you know there are species that grunt and you know we had who was that uh, Jim Lacasio studying that. Yeah. So yeah. with a what are you looking at the otoliths for? Is it about hearing or is it about something else? It's about something else. So hmm. as I mentioned, those otoliths actually grow with the fish. Every single day, a new layer of material is deposited on that otolith. So you can do two different things with that. The first thing is you can actually section that otolith just like a tree and and you can count count the the rings rings. and figure out how old that fish actually is. And you can do that on a daily scale or an annual scale. Hmm. Um, So you can not only know how old the fish is, but then you can start to look at each of those ring layers. And like a tree, if it's a broad broad band, there was a lot of growth. If it's a narrow band, there wasn't a lot of growth. When are these fish growing quickly? When are they growing slowly? And is this something that's widely used? Is it something that you're improving on? or? Yeah, a lot of fisheries researchers have been using this as a tool for a while. Mm. So it's one technique to understand your local fish populations. Cool. And with snook, one thing that we're doing is each of those layers may also have a very distinct chemistry. And that chemistry actually reflects the water chemistry when that layer was, was uh, put down on the otolith. So if you go all the way back to the center of the otolith, that's when the fish was just, just a little tiny yeah, baby. Little that's fried, when it was li- yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. when it was in that critical nursery habitat. So it, it actually provides a permanent record of the nursery habitat that that fish grew up in. So we can look at the chemistry of the of that part of the otolith and say, "Hey, where did these fish come from? What was the water like? What part of the bay did this fish originate from?" Cool. So some of our work just determined that actually you can use uh, the chemistry of the otolith as a signature to identify the different tidal creeks that these fish were using. That's really interesting. We love that. Yeah. And sn- snook are a little bit localized, right? So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sarasota Bay is an area where this kind of works because we have very few tidal creeks. Mm. So we have very few signatures, and these signatures are just distinct enough that you can start to identify uh, the nursery habitats that might be contributing to the adult population. Awesome. Hmm. 
Who would have known? Yeah. Fishery scientists. Oh, yeah, those guys. Okay, well, you're right. Now that, you know, too. That was a little nerdy. Right. It was a little nerdy. We love to be nerdy we on this. We Well, you're talking yeah. to a nerd, so. Oh. <laughs> thanks Listen, for, nerd. Thanks for coming into my, very, my room. <laughs> a very articulate nerd. <laughs> yeah. So with, this has been great. Um, we're going to uh, wrap it up. We're going to see you guys in two weeks for another episode of Two We C- won't literally see you. No, you'll hear us. You'll hear us, us but you, we won't see you. We won't hear you either. <laughs> Unless you leave us a review on iTunes, that would be nice. Please do that. Yeah, so we'll see you or hear you or you'll hear us in two weeks for another episode of 2C Fans at Mo. Bye.